Pat, I didn't know you had friends. <laughs> I thought you had alienated all your friends. Well, don't tell him. Let's keep him If you're uh, with us for the first time uh, today, thank you for coming. We hope you enjoy the class. It's a great class. Uh, people are enthusiastic about the Bible. Amen. Try to put the Bible uh, into practice, and that's always a good sign. We heard a great message, by the way, the pastor's message this morning on uh, two houses, one built on a solid rock and one built on sand. It's very important that we examine our own lives and see what our foundation is. Outwardly, we can look good, but if the foundation falls, uh, then we, we fall right along with it. So it's really important that we have a solid spiritual foundation. If you haven't heard that message yet, you'll really enjoy that at the 11 o'clock hour. Now, Joey, who usually sits here, is giving his testimony this morning as a special ed class. So uh, when is he going to be doing that? Just a couple minutes? Yeah. Is it going to be short or long? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it depends on how long he runs his mouth. Okay. Well, one thing we know, Joey will be heard. <laughs> because when he says something to me, when I'm speaking, everybody hears him. So, uh, let's remember to pray for Joey. This is a you know great opportunity for him. And, uh, we need to be praying for and Joey. his birthday is tomorrow. Joey's birthday is tomorrow, and he's going to be 49 years old. I thought he was like 25. I said, Joey, how old are you? 25? I said, no, 49. I asked him this morning. So that's, uh, that's surprising. Also, uh, the lunch bunch today is going to be going to Lakewood Country Club. And if you'd like to go, you can see Glenn Johnson sitting right at this table, or you can see me. We'll tell you more about that. That'll be a little after 11 o'clock this morning. Let's take our Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And today, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper. I mean, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer, not the Lord's Supper. I'm thinking of the country club. <laughs> you know where my mind is. So, <laughs> we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. I think I said Lord's Supper because that's what I've been writing on all week long, so it's on my mind. And we're going to cover chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. However, let me say that verses 5 through 13 also deal with the issue of prayer, uh, and uh, we're going to touch on that next week. I just thought I needed to really spend some time on the Lord's Prayer in a significant way. Okay, So even though we're not covering a lot of verses this week, it's very important. Now, many of you went to a church where the Lord's Prayer was repeated every Sunday. You went to a more, what we call a more liturgical church, where they had some order of worship that was laid out, and there was a slot in there for the Lord's Prayer. If you went to the Catholic Church, the way you said the Lord's Prayer was a little different, because the ending of the Lord's Prayer was left off. And it's very interesting that when you look at Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, if you look down at verse 4, at the end of verse 4, you'll notice that the words, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, are left off. So Luke's version is different than Matthew's version. And if you went to the Catholic Church, you prayed Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. And most people who are Protestant don't understand that. But there's a reason for that. Luke wants to emphasize only certain things when he talks about prayer. And he doesn't want to get into this. He doesn't want to end it on that note that uh, Matthew ends it on. Uh, it's very interesting that when we look at Luke's prayer, 
his model of the Lord's Prayer, uh, that we'll see certain features. I want you to notice some of those. First of all, let's just look at verse 1. It says this, Now it came to pass, this is Luke telling us the story, as he, that's Jesus, was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples, unnamed, said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Now, it doesn't tell us who this disciple was that answered, but it probably wasn't Peter. Because Peter didn't talk about things this serious. Uh, this was uh, probably one of the disciples who thought things through and had a little bit of a spiritual side to him. And uh, I want you to notice the basis for this prayer. What motivates the disciple to pray? First of all, it says, Jesus was praying in a certain place. So, Jesus' example is what motivates this disciple to ask on behalf of the group uh, to teach us to pray. Evidently, there was something about Jesus praying that was very significant. But also, there was some sort of precedence here. Because notice also, uh, at the end of this verse, uh, it says, Teach us to pray as John also, that's John the Baptist, taught his disciples. <clears throat> Uh, John evidently had a group of followers, and he taught them how to pray. In fact, every rabbi taught certain spiritual disciplines to their students. And so what's happening is that, and each one had a different model of prayer. And so what the disciples are saying is, Lord, teach us to pray the way you pray. We like to learn how you pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now, notice that phrase, teach us to pray. That's the key statement in verse 1. You're always hunting for the key verb. So the key verb is teach us. Teach us what? Teach us to pray. The way you pray, just as John's disciples taught his disciples to pray the way he prayed. So they're hunting for Jesus' model. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. Now, a couple things I want you to notice about this particular prayer. First of all, I want you to notice that it's what we call a corporate prayer. Okay? A corporate prayer. Notice, it says, our Father. doesn't say, my Father. When you pray, say, my Father, who's in heaven. So Jesus isn't talking about just an individual praying here. He's talking about a corporate prayer. Notice, our Father. And look at verse 3. Give us, this day, our. Forgive our sins, verse 4. As we... Forgive those who are indebted to us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So, it's a corporate prayer. This is the kind of prayer that should be prayed when you're in a group. Or a prayer that is being offered on behalf of the group, like a pastoral prayer. Uh, Ken Stoner came up a few moments ago, and he uh, opened his prayer. Our Father. Now why did he do that? Why do you say, say my Father? Why do you say Father? Why do you say our Father? Because he was offering the prayer on behalf of the group. See? So that's what we mean by a corporate prayer. It's very important. Uh, so don't look at the Lord's Prayer simply as a private prayer, although you can apply it that way. It's mainly here a corporate prayer. Now notice also it's a structured prayer. In verse 2 he talks about God's greatness. See? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
Verse 2 talks about God's greatness, but verses 3 and 4 talk about our need. Notice, again, it's the pronouns that give it away. <laughs> verse 2 focuses on God. Verses 3 and 4 focus on our needs. And because it focuses on our needs, we say these are. it's also not only a corporate prayer, but it's a petitionary <laughs> prayer. We are petitioning God on behalf of his people. So let's look at the content of this prayer. Okay? First of all, notice how God's address, the opening address. He says, Our Father. Many of you are very familiar with that word for Father. It's an Aramaic word, which is Abba. You've heard that word probably mentioned by pastors or preachers on television a thousand times. Uh, it's a word that most Jews never used. They never called God Father. Occasionally they did. In the Old Testament, God is called Abba on a few occasions. Every time it's used in the Old Testament, it refers to God as the creator of his people. And in the sense that God has created us, he is Father. But Jesus uses it. He infuses it with a, with a new meaning. When Jesus mentions the word Father, he's talking about a personal and an intimate relationship with God as Father. Not just he's just our creator, but he is the, we should be intimate with him. It's the word that would be used of a child sitting on his or her daddy's lap and uh, putting their head on the father's shoulder. It speaks of a, a relationship. So God is our father. We're to have an intimate relationship with him. Some people cannot relate to God as father. I have students get up and give testimonies every year, and they say, I can't relate to God as my father. And the reason they can't do that is because their father was a bum. And maybe you've been in a situation where your father wasn't everything he was supposed to be. He wasn't around. He worked all the time. He was too busy for you. He was self-consumed. He was maybe divorced from your mother at an early age, and you didn't have the father that you want. And you say, well, I can't relate to God as father. That father concept is not a good one for me. I have students say that all the time. And what I want you to know is that Jesus presents God as the perfect father. Amen. He's the kind of father you wish you could have. Amen. You think of the perfect father, the kind of father you wish you would have had, that's the kind of father that Jesus, that the father will be, that God the father will be to you. So he says God is our father. Now look at this. Our father in heaven. We're on earth. He's in heaven. We are limited by time and space. He's beyond time and space. There is a sense in which God is, even though he's our father and he loves us, he is beyond, he's not a human. We're humans on earth, he's God in heaven. And because he's in heaven, and I can't see in heaven, in order for me to know God, guess what has to happen? He has to be revealed to me. There has to be a revelation. And remember last week or the week before, back in chapter 10 and verse 22? Look at that uh, passage if you have it there. Chapter 10 and verse 22. Jesus said, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. If you want to know who Jesus is, only one person really knows who Jesus is, and that's the Father. 
If you want to know the real nature of Jesus, it takes a revelation. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son reveals him. Jesus has had an eternal relationship with the Father, and he alone knows him. And he can reveal God to you as a father. But it takes a revelation. Because God is in heaven. See? And we are here on earth. So that's very important. And now we come to what we call the petitions. Okay, There are six petitions here. Look at petition number one. Hallowed be your name. That's a command. Cause your name to be hallowed on the earth. Cause your name to be exalted. Cause your name to be sanctified and seen as awesome. Now, mostly when we read this, it says, Hallowed be thy name. We take this as instructions that Jesus is giving, that Jesus is giving to us that we are to exalt God's name, that we're to hallow his name. No, no, it's a command. This is a petition that commands God to cause his name to be exalted on earth. God has to do this. Now, what in the world does that mean? Why does he command? It's very interesting. Anytime you see a petition, a prayer in the Bible, that takes on the form of a command, it speaks of urgency. Okay? Speaks of urgency. Help! Yeah, we'll pad up. <laughs> help! Look. Help! Is that a command? It's a command, but it's also a petition. And what does it mean when I say help? It means help now. <laughs> There's an urgency here. See, it's a, it, it speaks of emotion. It's a cry. And so we are to cry out to God. And we, Jesus said, when you cry out to God and you give your, your, your petitions, cry out to God and say, Lord, exalt your name on the earth. So we're commanding God. Not in the charismatic sense where we command God, God, heal in the name of Jesus. Not, not that kind of stuff. Okay. This is an urgent cry for God to exalt his name on the earth. Now, how does God do that? How would God answer that prayer? How does God exalt his name? How does God get people's attention so they say, man, that God's awesome? How does God cause people to fear him, to respect him, to reverence him? Well, I mean, you can do it through what we call, what the insurance company calls, acts of God. That'll get your attention. <laughs> Tornado comes through. Insurance company won't even pick it up. You have a flood, the insurance company won't even pay for it. They'll say, that was an act of God. <laughs> Maybe an atheist owns the company, but he said, that was an act of God. <laughs> so let me tell you, that kind of stuff gets your attention, doesn't it? Um, a birth. I remember I was there when all three of my children were born. I watched them being birthed in front of my eyes, and all I could do was just praise God. That caused God's name to be exalted. Uh, death. We had a death this week. Uh, Ralph Baker, Jr. I mean, he was 63 years old. I would have thought he was about 50. I mean, he looked like a movie star. But let me tell you something. 
that's going to get a lot of people's attention. And it's going to drive the fear of God into a lot of people who may be friends of his that were Christians and people who are going to come to the funeral that, you know, don't know Christ. It's going to grab their attention. And God's name is going to be exalted at that funeral. And it may end up being exalted in people's lives. It'll be exalted in the life of his family because even in the midst of this tragedy, they'll praise God and God's name will be exalted. God can cause his name to be exalted. So this is what Jesus says. Whatever it takes. When you pray, you should say, God, whatever it takes, exalt your name. Because in the end, let me tell you something. When the kingdom of God comes on earth, the scripture says, God will be all in all and his name will be known by everybody. Amen. And so we're asking God to even do that now. Now look at the second petition. Your kingdom come. Cause your kingdom to be established. This is probably speaking about the future kingdom. Lord, one of our prayers is, as a church, we pray, Lord, establish your kingdom. Now, we know that's going to happen when Christ comes again. But we should be praying for that. We should be praying for Christ's return and the kingdom to be established always. That should, that's our great expectation. <coughs> the word Maranatha. You ever heard of that word? The last prayer in the Bible is Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Set up your kingdom. John, in his book of Revelation, has a final prayer. The final words in the book. Guess what? Your kingdom come. That's how important that is. Used to be, I go because I've been writing on the Lord's Supper, I can tell you that it used to be in the early church in the second century that the Lord's Supper always ended with the prayer Maranatha. For some reason, that sort of dropped by the wayside. That's something we should probably restore. Because this is a, a prayer that's supposed to be uttered in a, in a group and in a church. You now look at that next petition in verse 2. Your will be done. Your will be done. That means right now. We should be praying that God's rule, God's will, is done. Where is it? On earth as it is in heaven. Notice all the present tense verbs there. Do you see that? Be done as it is right now in heaven. So we're praying that God's will will be accomplished on earth and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is God's will being done in heaven? Yes, I would say God's will is being done in heaven. Everybody in heaven obeys God. It's an amazing thing. And what we're praying is, Lord, make your will done on earth. Cause people to bow the knee now. Boy, that's a strong prayer. That's a command. Every one of these petitions is a command. It's a cry of urgency. <clears throat> Cause people to submit to your will now. That's a dangerous prayer. You say, well, how would he do that? How can God cause his will to be done on earth? Well, he can do it through the preaching of the word. The person hears the gospel, hears the word preached, 
here's what's said this morning. And guess what? They said, I'm going to do it. And when they do it, God's will is done through the preaching of the word. The pastor talked about two houses being built. He said, what kind of foundation is your life built on? Are you sure you're saved? You need to, make, you need to be living the life, not just talking the life. Well, when you live the life, God's will is being done. And if somebody in this morning service responded to that message, God's will is going to be done. So how does God answer these prayers? Well, he answers it through the preaching of the word. He answers it through wise counsel. There have been many times I didn't know what to do. I was seeking God's will, and I went to a counselor, a friend of mine, a godly person. I said, what do you think? I went to a multitude of counselors, and they gave me advice. And based on that, I discerned to God's will. How was his will done? It was done through human means, through wise counselors. So it's, that's important. We see how that happens. It can be that God uh, puts you on your back. Forces you to look up. Forces you to examine your life. And let me tell you, that will put you in line with God's will very quickly. So this is a dangerous prayer. When you say, Lord, your will be done, you need to think of the personal implications for you. And for a church, see? So that's important. So that's the third petition. It's a command. Now look at the fourth petition. The fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice now he switches from God to us. He switches from God's goodness and God's will to us. So this fourth petition is give us our daily bread. I had an old drinking buddy who used to say, pray this prayer, but Lord, give us this day our daily bud. <laughs> and you heard Anheuser-Busch was sold, didn't you? To some, yeah, <laughs> sold to some corporation outside the United States. Well... <laughs> anyway, it's not but, it's give us this day our daily bread. Now, this is a request, notice, for our daily needs to be met. You see that? Our daily bread. Not for a year's supply. And by the way, let me say to this, this is very important to a group that's our age. A group who's putting trust in stocks and bonds and markets and commodities and and uh, we're planning and trusting for our future, our year's supply, years and years and years of supply. That's not where your trust should be. We could be right back to where we were in the 20s. And don't think it can't happen. I mean, our government's scared to death because of the banking industry right now. And it's not whether the banks are really solid or not. You know what it is. It's the psychology of the thing, right? People lose trust. And there's a run. Our banks don't have the money to cover everything. If there's a run, everybody runs to their bank. Don't trust that. We are to trust God to meet our daily needs, not our greeds, not our future. Notice it's our daily needs. Now, very interesting, I think. So we're trusting God. Lord, we're trusting you to meet our daily needs. This is what prayer is in its essence. Prayer is a statement of our trust and our dependence upon God. This is why prayer, above everything else, is the mark of a real Christian. Above everything else. 
A real Christian is a person who prays. Because in praying, what are they saying? Lord, I'm depending on you. I'm not depending on my own ingenuity. I'm not depending on my own wisdom, my own advice. I'm depending upon you. And a Christian is one who depends upon Christ. So we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, how does the Lord provide this daily bread? Our daily bread. Our daily bread. Well, one way is through work. Now listen very carefully, because this is important. In Bible times, people got paid every day. You didn't work for a week and get paid for a week. They didn't hold back a week's pay. You got paid a denarius, if you were a typical worker, each day. You were like a day laborer. That's how everybody got paid in Bible times. So, you worked, and guess what you got? One day's pay, that bought one day's worth of bread. So we need to look at work as God providing for our needs. That's one way he provides for our needs. Now, what's another way it provides for our needs? Well, we just took a boot off of it. He provides for our needs through the church. Now, another thing that's very important is that in the New Testament times, the church met daily in homes, and guess what they did there? They ate. They broke, broke what? Bread daily. And uh, those who had money, and there were wealthy people in the church, and they met in those homes, and there were poor people, poor as church mice, and some people didn't have jobs. And guess how their daily bread was provided? It was provided through what we call today the Lord's Supper. They had a daily Lord's Supper. It was an actual meal. It wasn't a cracker and grape juice. They actually had a meal. And their daily bread was met. God met needs through the church's supper. And it was called whose supper? Oh, who's providing? See, the church realized who did the providing. Now, in the book of Luke, we've been talking for the past few chapters about something called hospitality, haven't we? And the apostles have been traveling around, and guess what? They weren't to take any food with them, and who was to provide for their needs? The host family. How is God going to provide? Through hospitality. So you can see how God does provide. He provides. He can provide in a natural way. He can provide in a supernatural way. Did he provide daily bread for Israel? Yeah, it was called manna from heaven. And guess what? It was daily bread. They couldn't say, give me, give me two days worth of supply and my back's hurting. I don't want to bend over every day. He only provided one day at a time. So he can provide supernaturally. And he can provide naturally. I had a professor during World War II, which is very interesting. I wasn't a student of his at that time. But <laughs> during World War II, he was a young minister, and uh, everything was rationed in the United States. He was a seminary professor. He had students, and he would invite them over to his house. And uh, they would drink tea, and they would drink coffee. And he said, we will continue to meet and drink our tea and coffee as long as we have sugar. As long as the sugar lasts, we'll meet every day at my house and talk about theological things. And they had basically a sugar container. Now, this is his testimony. It's not mine. 
I'm assuming the guy's not a liar. He didn't ever seem to be a liar to me. He said throughout the entire war, that sugar bowl never went down. And every day they were dipping into it. Now, either he's a liar or it happened. You know? But that God can supernaturally supply. Now, if you have doubts, well, then you have doubts about God supplying manna from heaven. You know? This is his testimony. And he said this caused these students, and he was teaching in a liberal seminary. He says this is what got the liberal students' attention and started causing them to start thinking about God in a serious way. So God could provide our daily needs that way. Okay, what else does, by the way, when he says supply us our daily bread, uh, many theologians and New Testament scholars will tell us that uh, this means provide us the bread of the kingdom now. Because the, when we when the kingdom of God comes on earth, it's going to be like a great big feast, big banquet feast. And we can experience some of the benefits of the kingdom of God even right now in the present. And so what we're saying is, God, give us some of the kingdom blessings right now. So that's indeed possibly what they're talking about. Just one day at a time. Sweet Jesus, that's all I'm asking of you. Okay? So, our daily bread. Now look at the fifth petition. Verse 4. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. If we also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Is that what it says? Doesn't say that, does it? Now look at Luke's version. This is very interesting. Luke's version says, Forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. To us. We're not only to ask God to give us things, but we're asked ask God to forgive us of some things. Now notice, it's not only what we get, bread. It's not only what he gives us, it's also his forgiving us. Man shall not live by Bread alone. So bread's important, but that's not all important. Forgiveness is more important than bread, believe it or not. Okay? So he says, forgive us, look, us, our sins, not my sins. Sin in this context is communal sins. Church-wide sins. Not just your individual sin. Yeah, you need to pray for God to forgive you your sins. But in this Lord's Supper... It's the church praying. Lord, forgive us our sins. Well, what kind of sins does the church commit? Well, you know what kind of sins it commits. When it doesn't meet people's needs. When it ignores the poor. You see? When it does the things, these are corporate sins. Things that a church would, when it does, when, it, when Christians and churches take other, church, other members to court. And the church allows that to happen. Paul and Corinth said, you're taking each other to court and you're allowing it to happen. Guess what? In that case, the church is sin. To the church at Corinth, he said, you have a guy in your midst that's committing incest with his stepmother. You're allowing it to happen. That's a corporate sin. That's the church sinning, as well as an individual sin. The church needs to say, Lord, forgive us our sin. For... We as a whole, as a church, 
forgive everyone who is, notice the next word, indebted to us. We don't expect people to pay back their debts. See, when the person who had no money came to the Lord's Supper and ate his food that they didn't pay for, we don't say, well, you can pay it back next week. Don't forget, that meal cost our church $5.63. So just put an IOU in there. And then when you come in, when your ship comes in, then you can pay it back. No. That's not how Christianity works. We, that's what the book of Luke has been all about, hasn't it? That we're not to be like other people and we keep accounts and when one person invites us to dinner, we invite them to dinner, tit for tat. It's not that. It's the church is very forgiving. And we don't expect people to pay us back. That's the nature of the church. Jesus didn't expect people to pay him back when he did good things for him. He didn't keep a record. And neither does it, should his church keep a record. So he says, forgive us our sins. For, because, since, Matthew says, as we forgive others their sins. Just as we're following out your rules, Lord, uh, forgive us our sins. Not if we do it, but because we are manifesting the nature of Christ in our church, Lord, we Expect you. This is a command. Okay, not a nasty command, but an urgent command. Lord, forgive us our sins. Don't hold anything against us. We know when we come up short, don't hold that against us. Now we come to the last petition. At the end of verse 4. Do not lead us into temptation. Do not lead us into temptation. Don't allow us to fall into this worldly mindset. Who controls the world? <coughs> Satan controls the world. Don't allow us to fall into the temptation of operating like the world operates. Once you see that, you'll see how that whole prayer comes together. Scripture says that God tempts no one morally. God never tries to get you to sin. Say, ah, let me get you to sin. He's not some malicious God who has a twisted or warped sense of humor. Uh, but he's saying, God, don't allow us to fall into temptation. Uh, remember, Jesus fell into temptation. Uh, it says Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Lord, don't, don't do that to us. <laughs> don't ever allow that to happen to us. We won't be able to survive. I never want God to do that. Uh, remember what Satan's temptation was, by the way? Turn these stones into... Oh, yeah. Oh, now see how it sort of comes together? Use the wrong means to get the bread. Uh, do it the way Satan wants you to do it. Follow his drift. No, Lord, don't ever... Allow us to fall into, into temptation. Now, the Lord does allow us to fall into trials. We heard that this morning. And he does that for our own good. Now, believe it or not, he uses Satan for that too. And there's a difference between a trial and a temptation. A temptation is to stop trusting God, 
Turn these stones into bread. Trust your own devices. It's an attempt to turn you away from God. A moral sin. But a trial is a crisis that you're going through. And a trial or a test is designed to prove that you are faithful to God. And that's the difference. When Ford takes its cars out to the desert to test them, it does it to prove that they can withstand the worst conditions. They're not taking them out there to <laughs> cause them to fail. They're taking them out there to show they can withstand the worst conditions. God puts us through the test to show that we're real believers, that we're genuine believers, that through thick or thin we'll depend upon him, we'll never deny him. Have you considered my disciple Job? Ah, oh, Job only serves you because you've given him everything, strip him of everything, he'll deny you. And God allows a trial to come into Job's life and we have families in our class this week that are going through trials and death and families, but they won't deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that trial will prove that they're genuine Christians. And there's a difference, and we don't want God to put us through any <coughs> temptation, because that is a very difficult time. Peter, Satan has desired to sift you. He wants you to deny me and turn your back on me and stop following me like Judas did. See, Judas, Scripture says, and Satan entered Judas and he betrayed Jesus. And God allows Peter to go through a similar situation. Whether it was a trial or a temptation, I don't know. But Jesus said, you'll come through it and you'll be proved to be sterling. Silver, you'll be pure. So, he says, do not lead us into temptation. Now look at this next word. But, deliver us from the evil one. Where Matthew says from evil, Luke makes it very clear. Deliver us from the evil one who indeed is Satan. Don't, in other words, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us. Lord, don't forsake us. That's what you're saying. Don't, leave it, don't allow us to get tempted and just sort of turn your back on it. Don't forsake us, but rescue us. But deliver us from Egypt. Deliver us like you delivered Israel from Egypt. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from Egypt. Deliver us from all the evil that's around us and the powers that are around us that are being controlled by Satan. Now, how does God do this? Well, you can do it naturally. You can do it supernaturally. Uh, Jesus was thrown on the cross by an evil empire behind which Satan was pulling the strings. He's the god of this world. And it looked like Jesus was forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he forsaken? Three days later, what happened? He was delivered from evil. He was raised from the dead. Satan couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him. Death, which comes through sin, 
death which was produced because of Satan's initial temptation in the garden. He was a victim of all this. Did it hold him? No. God delivered him from the evil one. And he did it supernaturally. And he can deliver us out of those circumstances supernaturally. And there are churches as a whole that end up in messes that they can't get out of because of wrong decisions or because somebody has done something to the church. We've seen synagogues that have been burned and vandalized because of people who don't like Jewish people, haven't we? My mother went to a church, believe it or not, when she was a little girl that was pastored by a converted Jew. He was a, he was a Jew who was converted to Christianity. She lived in southern Illinois in the Klan, burned down that man's church and his house. Simply because he was Jewish. He was a Jewish Christian, but he was Jewish, and they burned down that church. Well, that was evil. But God delivered him. And that's what we pray. Is, Lord, don't forsake us in these situations, but deliver us. Now let me give you a few lessons based on this passage. Can I do that? Okay, lesson number one. Only in verse three is there a reference to the physical or the material. Only in verse three is there a reference to the physical or the material. And that means that our prayers should focus more on the spiritual and the eternal rather than the physical. Six petitions... One deals with physics. Okay? Lesson number two. God knows our needs before we even utter those needs. But what he wants us to do is he wants us to utter those needs publicly. He wants us to demonstrate our dependence and our confidence on him in front of other people through prayer. He wants us publicly to pray Showing others that we are trusting him through thick and thin. Prayer is very important. Okay? Lesson number three. As a father, because that's what God is, he delights in meeting the needs of his children. Just like you did. I was talking to someone this morning. They said to me, they said, you know, I give my child a lot. And I've even money. Because I want to. I love my child. You know, I've never asked my child to sign a note. So I, in fact, I'll never loan money to my child. Because I know that's the worst thing you could do. <laughs> Start expecting it back. And guess what? You don't act like a father after that. You act like a banker. Don't you? And he's like a borrower. And suddenly, that relationship of a father and son has just been destroyed. So God knows our needs, and he's our father, and guess what? He wants to meet our needs without us ever paying him back. That's what God's like, you see. In fact, if I would have had the time, I would have gone through verses 5 through 13 today, and I would have shown you in verse 11, if you look down there, it says, if a son asks for bread from his father, will the father give him a stone? And guess what the answer is? No. no. By the way, there's that stone and bread again. Hey, turn that stone in the brook. <laughs> See, that's what a father does. A father, a son says, 
give me bread. The father would ah, take a stone instead. That's not what a father would do. You can live off of stones. No, he wouldn't do that. He says, if you ask your father for a fish, would he give you a serpent? Instead of the fish, no father would do that. So God is a father, and he knows what we need, and he wants to help us. And he delights in helping us. That's why he invites us to pray. And then finally, since these six petitions in verses 2 through 4 are commands, a cry, if you will, help, it means that our prayers, when we pray, they shouldn't be detached. We shouldn't just be going through the motions when we pray. They shouldn't be half-hearted prayers. What kind of prayers should they be? They should be prayers that come from the heart. Prayers of urgency. Prayers of emotion. Especially when a church gets together. Especially when we, the church gets together for prayer during prayer meeting or during a pastoral prayer. It shouldn't just be, uh, Father, we just thank you for this. No. It should be on behalf of God's people, collectively. It should be, these are commands that cry out, Help! Oh, Lord, help! And that's the kind of prayers that God expects when the church comes together. Amen. We'll pick up there next week. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to put our lives individually in line with your word, that your will can be done on earth. Help our church to be in line with your word as well, that your will can be done in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.